CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. A quick reminder, you can listen to us weekly on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts, and we always love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line Money Reimagined, with suggestions for guests or comments on our shows. It's another wild week in crypto, both in the regulatory side and in terms of new product launches. We thought we'd kick off this week's episode with Michael and I chatting a bit about WorldCoin, which has dominated the news cycle in the crypto space for the last 24 hours. Lots of excitement and consternation about this concept, which Sen Altman has been building for quite some time, but it's now live. Michael, what are your thoughts on this whole? <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. so, so I think like WorldCoin, like it, it's a perfect storm. For <laughs> all the, the things. mega narrative, all the things, right? It's like AI, it's Sam Altman, it's Worldcoin, it's conspiracy, it's all these things, and it's um, got an orb. I mean, and it's got the orb, which is just like this thing to focus on. The orb. I see. I see yeah. Nick Carter. Like, I think his his Twitter handle now says the, Orb Number Two or something. Yeah. And, the, uh, the, for those who don't know, Worldcoin. Is, so Sam Altman, who's the founder of OpenAI, in parallel has been working on this project called Worldcoin, and Worldcoin is a, a cryptocurrency, it's a token, but uh, it has a unique underlying component to it, which is in order to secure this and to establish uh, authenticity in the space, you need to do a basic biometric scan using an object called an orb. Again, these names like write themselves, the comedy writes itself. Uh, and the idea is that this is something called proof of unique personhood. It's a way of establishing that you are you, you are not a machine, you are not someone else, etc. And this, at least as it's touted, is a foolproof mechanism for ensuring that each uh, individual human, you know, has its own wallet, it has access to the tokens. It's a way of securing identity in, in, a, in a way that I personally find extremely challenging, but I find biometrics challenging to begin with. So just with that bit of background for our listeners who may not be as familiar, uh, Michael, yeah. Might be worth, uh, you know, calling up your your auntie. And I'm sorry, I forget, I forget her. Yeah, name. Usha, yeah, Usha Yeah. Yes, and and her <laughs> incredibly. Thinks, I can only imagine. 
Uh, yeah, her intense takedown yes. of like the very idea of digital identity as a project and and certainly on biometrics and, and this ultimately abuse of human rights that she put it down to, right? Which yeah. is why people get very emotional about this sort of stuff. And like, I'm literally on the fence here. And it's not to say that I don't share those concerns. I, I definitely do. I think that the proof of personhood thing is a very real and big problem that we should try to solve. Now, I, I don't know that you need biometrics. There may be really interesting sort of web of trust ideas as, as otherwise. But whenever we talk about identity and solutions for it, I don't know that just washing our hands and say there should be no identity of some sort out there is going to solve anything because we are constantly going to keep coming back to this. And I'll just give you an example that I was thinking about the other day. So this was a email that came in WS. I wasn't surfing to discover this, but I learned that there's a lot of AI created only fans girls or digital girls or what you want to call them out there right now okay. very beautiful very you know enticing and, and it's all the the stories all these stupid schmucks who are out there paying money to a machine thinking that they're watching this beautiful real girl live on only fans digital right? sirens digital sirens digital sirens right to your now why yet. is this why is this really problematic whatever you make of Porn and all of this stuff. One of the, I think, rather compelling arguments for only, and only fans. I'm not going to necessarily defend them, but one of the compelling arguments for this version of sex work is that it takes otherwise vulnerable people off the streets and allows them to sort of make money on their own terms. And so I just started thinking about, wow, like now, if, if you're being outcompeted by this sort of digital avatar. How do you prove that it, you're actually a human? Because that's what presumably would allow you to then go back and start making money. Because one would presume, I don't know, that these people would prefer to be engaging with a, you know, a, a real person as opposed to a digital person in, in one of these camming situations. And well, if you can't, yeah, does that mm. push you back out into the street as the only place where you can now legitimately prove that you're a human? I do think the proof of human thing is really something that we need to be thinking hard about. Does it require biometrics? Does it not? What is the mm. what is the model around which, particularly in an AI world, we can protect human beings from the well, that's really of the interesting. Okay, it's because because one of the one of the more the takes that I I stopped on a bit and was like, whoa, uh, that I saw on uh, Twitter, or shall we say X, another topic we should oh, discuss goodness, shortly. Yeah. Yes, wow. uh, it was this idea that are we being premature? in defining personhood as humans. And my knee-jerk reaction to that was, wow, wow, you find a lot of content on X on Twitter that maybe is, you know. But it was this yeah. idea that what is it going to mean to be sentient? And are we perhaps being premature in our assessment of what that means, which is a whole nother can of worms. So look, the criticisms of this thing are all over the map in the tech space and in the crypto space from biometrics are horrible and terrible and abusive, de facto default, which of you I don't necessarily hold that strongly, but I generally am, am open to, to how dare we presume that machines are not someday going to be just as critical allies or whatever it is as actual people. And why are we assuming that we know, you know, we can foresee the future. But the point is, I think overall, this is one to watch. It is certainly raising eyebrows all over the world. The UK Information Commission already doing an investigation, from what I understand, into this, uh, examining you know what what is actually happening here, uh, what's going on with the scanning. Does it violate some of our civil rights and civil liberties? And there's all kinds of questions that are going to be emerging, and they're going to have an influence over not just identity but also over crypto in general. 
Um, but with that, let's just turn quickly to, to the other news that hit the headlines, which is differently relevant to the crypto world, which is uh, Elon Musk deciding seemingly arbitrarily and very quickly affecting this transition from Twitter, a brand the world has known, loved, despised, reviled, but certainly been aware of for many, many years uh, over into something he's calling X. Thoughts on this, Michael? Uh, well, so I, again, I'm not necessarily going to give a yeah. clear answer whether I like this or not, but I just think what, what's the takeaway for me? All of the major, the three, the three major, most high-profile um, internet platforms, th th these entities that control our world in a degree we've never Whether been we like it or not. before, yeah. Yeah. have all rebranded in some way over the last ten years, despite the fact that their actual brands, by any measure, are deeply established and one would argue extremely successful. Right. What does that tell you about what is problematic about the model itself? Why on earth would Google want to change Google? Now, admittedly, Google kept Google the brand for the product, which is saying something, but it changed its name to Alphabet at the corporate level. Um, Facebook, as we know, went to Meta. Right? Why, why would you give up on Facebook? Facebook was extremely successful. Any branding well, the product, expert, the core would product say, is still called Facebook. I mean, people still log in. Well, well, there you go. So, so we're still it, back to so what, what, what's way, going yeah. on here now. And here's Twitter. I suppose X. Either way, yeah. The, so yes, Facebook and Meta, same thing as Google, right? So what? Do, what? What's going on there? I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm, I think that there is such negativity now around big tech, around these institutions that this is a sign of, of that desperate need to fix something yeah. that cannot be fixed, right? I mean, Twitter and and Musk is a sign is in and of themselves, him and the, the the way the company's managed, a sign of trying to fix something that cannot be fixed as well, because they've just thrown everything at the wall. And it's it, the chaos is in some respects just an outcome of the broken structure of Web2. Well, the chaos but is a feature, not a bug. It's interesting yes, to me, I think that even Jack Dorsey, you know, came out and said, well, the Twitter brand has, you know, pros and cons, pros and cons, right? Like there's there's things where that brand is very helpful and there's a lot of baggage that comes with the brand, which is also true. So it's an interesting time. I think we're going to see, you know, it, it, more of this sort of different kinds of reactions to things, which I think just presage, you know, what's going to happen in the crypto industry going forward. Are we going to start seeing people changing nomenclature, changing terminology and changing branding, acknowledging some of the vitriol that is aimed in, in this direction? Maybe that's something we're going to start seeing. Who knows? But there's certainly precedent for it. And when a brand is established as Twitter, or to your point, even a Facebook or a Google, although I'd argue those are a bit different, decides to make a change like this, um, you know, I, I don't think they're different. I mean, they're, they're very different players, but they're not different at all in terms of the well, underlying structure of yeah. Web2. They are all part and parcel of the same problem. But anyway, that's that's all I'm going to say. Listen, well, we've had enough. Let's bring in our guests. Yeah, all of that. Well, we're, well, this week we're focusing on none of the above, although uh, for our guests, we'll always welcome thoughts on this. Uh, our guest, Adrian Hale, Director of Economic Community Development at Foundry Digital, at least for now, Foundry Digital. Adrian, perhaps there are plans to change the name that you can read us into. <laughs> Why Why yeah. the letter Y? Sorry, yeah, sorry. why not? Why not? J, B. I mean, there's so many choices. 26 choices, it turns out. Oh, yes, 25 choices. X is taken, apparently. You know, we're going to be speaking today a bit more about mining, about Bitcoin mining and mining operations and, and how this interplay between local communities and mining operations, what's really going on in the real world as opposed to maybe what's being talked about and hyped both ways in the media. So we'll bring in Adrian shortly. Cool. Just to, to do the perfunctory uh, disclosure that is required every time any uh, Coindesk 
article or a piece is done with a company that is is related to DCG to just to disclose the fact that, of course, DCG, the Digital Currency Group, which owns Foundry, also is the owner of Coindesk. Okay. So back to you, Sheila. With that being said, well, yeah. So Adrian, we'd love to just hear from you. Like, walk us through, like, what's really going on in some of these spaces? Because we hear, you know, oh, mining is actually a boon to local communities. It's creating economic opportunity. And then we hear, no, the environmental damage is so atrocious and it's actually a job killer, you know, et cetera. So walk us through your perspective on this. Maybe give us a little history. Where did things used to be? Where are they now? What changes are you seeing? And, you know, is there a name change in the works? <laughs> so first off, thank you so much for inviting me on, Michael, Sheila, Michelle. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and get to speak about a little bit of what I do. For all of you who don't know, I'm Director of Economic and Community Development, but also Director of Foundry Deploy. And in my community perspective, I'm a New York State region, so I'm on the State Board of Education. So there's a nice interplay between what I do in our community and what I, what I bring to Foundry. Ultimately, what made me join the Foundry team, because prior to this role, I was a Chamber of Commerce executive overseeing workforce development, talent strategy, and economic development for a nine-county region in Greater Rochester, was just the, the fact that these emergent jobs in an industry that is very future-focused, higher salaries and gainful employment, was something that a community like Rochester really needed. For those of you who don't know, Foundry is based out of Rochester, New York, our CEO, is a native of Rochester, and he was adamant about building Foundry there. And so he did, and he recruited me to come in and see the economic development piece, which in my, you know, with my skill sets, I align workforce development efforts and getting, you know, inner city youth who are highly at risk of violence and the shadow economy and, you know, dropouts and whatnot, aligned and on-ramped into some of the jobs that we were creating at Foundry. And so we created not just a fellowship to do the barrier to entry removal, the upskilling, but then we also created Foundry Deploy, which is the business line that they power. You know, in New York, there's a very hostile environment to mining, Mm -hmm. largely around the environmental concerns and reservations. Mm -hmm. And what we try to do at Foundry is inform state lawmakers that we can chew gum and walk at the same time, right? Like we don't have to be um, hostile. Um, and exclusive of Bitcoin mining within New York State in name of environmental uh, responsibility, but that we can also find ways to do this work. We can power it with renewable energy. New York is rich in renewable energy sources. We have the St. Lawrence River. We have Niagara Falls in Rochester. We have the Genesee River in High Falls, right? We have tons of wind power. There's a huge wind farm that's about southwest of Rochester in Genesee County. And I can't name all the different solar companies in our community. So there's ways to do this work in an environmentally responsible way. And that's been our huge advocacy uh, push to our state leaders who, you know, haven't been as friendly toward our industry as we would like them to be. So what specifically are the jobs that you're mm-hmm. upskilling for, like very specifically? Yep. So we have a, a role called a mining engineer, which there's a bunch of different certifications. So think in terms of like warehouse work. So you know how to use a pallet jack, forklift, um, scissor lift, various different pieces of equipment. So there's the certification piece, but then there's also the skill sets, right? So there's installation, deinstallation, refurbishment, troubleshooting, diagnostics, and repair of mining equipment. So those are kind of the two sets of skills that we try to train our mining engineers to have. And we create a fellowship which takes recently graduated youth from our city school district in Rochester. We put them through 
literacy and numeracy enrichment. We give them driver's education so they can get licenses because we know the geography of work, right? This work is all over the place. And for a lot of people, public transportation just doesn't meet their needs as it relates to getting to where the work actually is. And then we give them jobs, gainfully employ them, right? They're making almost 300 times that of an average um, African-American or Hispanic within the city of Rochester and 200 times that of an African-American or Hispanic within the state of New York. So they're out of poverty, which if, for those of you who don't know, Rochester is second in the country in childhood poverty, and we're third in the country in poverty overall. So it's very, so for us, it's a priority to make the promises of blockchain technology, decentralized infrastructure tangible, right? So that the more people are personally affected in a positive way by our industry, state lawmakers and other folks who have a bias towards what we do are less likely to take action that is ad, has an adverse impact if people can feel the personal effect of that. If I just break this down to what I would say is the politics of what's going on here, right? Because jobs always is a political thing. One of the challenges I think the mining industry is going to have in this is that it, it is relative to the amount of money that you're making, not a labor-intensive industry, right? Yes, you need jobs. People look after these things. But these are this is a highly computerized industry. This is a high, industry that is largely mechanized. And so unlike, say, a factory that has a bunch of people that you can say, hey, give us X amount of tax easements to come in and build this thing because I've got you know 10,000 employees coming in here. Mining is never going to do that. So it is a part of what I imagine the lobbying, and, uh, and, and I'm sure you, you know, you're not necessarily putting this in terms of lobbying, you're putting it in the right language of like community development, which is great. But going to the chase, like getting support from politicians, you've only got so much you can go with on jobs. Whereas I do think this oh. point you're making about the rest of the industry, and you've got solar generators, like the degree to which there's a conversation that says, we are all in this, and it's not just about mining, it's about energy solutions and all the other ancillary services that come in around that, then it starts to get interesting. So I'd be interested to know if you could dig into that a little bit more. Like, like there's only so much runway you can get from, hey, we're bringing jobs to Rochester, because you just literally aren't going to have enough of them. But how do you bring all these other folks along for the ride to make a much more compelling package of like, this is all of us offering up jobs and opportunities for advancement? So I'll, I'll actually push back just a little bit. I knew Mike. you were going to say push back, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll actually push back just a little bit because even though it's a mechanized industry and the units themselves, the machines themselves are actually doing the hashing, right? Based on the environmental conditions, when I talk about refurbishment, there are some locations that require very intensive, you know, activity to keep those units up and hashing because it could be sand, it could be mud, it could be whatever, whatever the environmental factors are, water, whatever. Those units require a lot of refurbishment. And we're talking about in the thousands. Then you also have just basic repairs. Then you also have every so often a new miner comes out, a new machine comes out. Then you have a big miner that wants to replace 10, 15, 20,000 units overnight because there's a new machine with more hash rate, right? So believe it or not, I would say there is a core uh, concentration of jobs around mining facilities. That means the, the warehouses, the locations themselves, and the upkeep in general, the installation, deinstallation, repair, troubleshooting, refurbishment, all that stuff. So I think there is a concentration of jobs there. And to my earlier point, we are sending a message to the industry that we are going beyond temp labor at this point in order to really maximize 
fleet efficiency. Most operations run between 80-85% when they could be running above 95% like our fleet at Foundry. So there's that, right? And then in addition to you, right, there's all of these peripheral industries like green energy and the equipment and the upkeep and, and just in general as it relates to supporting mining. And we haven't even gotten into like the broader economic development strategy, which is municipalities and states that are energy, natural energy resource rich. Like how do they also enter the game, if you will, and utilize their energy resources in order to add to their bottom lines, offset deficits, um, and I think bring stability to the Bitcoin network and encourage people, larger institutional investors, because that's really what we're waiting on is larger institutional you know, financial institutions to say, hey, this is the right time to get in now because the volatility has kind of been removed. There's a bit of an iceberg dynamic here, right? Like there's the work that you see, very mm-hmm. small, and then there's the large you yeah. know, amount of-, of No, you which know, is why I asked the question about the ecosystem. Unseen I, I think, work yeah, that goes think, on. You know, it's all sort of r- relative to investment and what will be perceived to be whatever that cost that the community is bearing of having you there. Now, that's obviously a whole other conversation. Uh, around whether or not there is indeed, you know, some sort of environmental damage and so forth, and, and clearly that that's that's a whole. We've had loads of discussions about this on on this. So this, let me um, just throw this out here too, because I think yeah. here's an unspoken relationship between mining and uh, and renewable energies. Obviously, we know renewable energies are very intermittent. The battery technology just isn't here. I mean, at the most generous projection, we're talking about at least ten years away mm-hmm. for like sustainable battery technology to store energy created by renewable sources. However, when you use mining as a way to capture as a load that renewable energy, when you have those intermittencies and you have network imbalances or right. grid imbalances, excuse me, right? It's that controllable load dynamic of I can shut off one megawatt, five megawatts, 15 megawatts and redistribute energy to the grid. In many ways, as much as, you know, some environmentalists and I have to just be, you know, candid here. Politics in America right now is starting to lose the trust of the general public because what is in the best interest of a single legislator with finite district, a set amount of people that they represent? in a particular worldview that they're able to get away with doesn't always lead to policy that's in the public interest or provides for the public good. And and we know education information isn't enough to remedy that in an ideal world it is, but it, it just hasn't planned out for us here in New York. But if they were to be thoughtful, there's two arguments I would give back to folks who are environmentally conscious. The first is, when states like New York see that, you know, Bitcoin mining, crypto mining in general, it's harmful to the environment like many other industries are. What you do is allow other states or other localities and municipalities that aren't as environmentally conscious to conduct that work in a way that isn't responsible at all and who have no problems or qualms about using hydrocarbons or traditional, you know, energy sources like coal that we all know have a harmful effect on the environment and don't really have you know, the same kind of passion or desire to do this work in an environmentally responsible way. The second is, it's the relationship between crypto mining as a means to act as a low for renewable energy and provide that balancing if you need through the controllable low mechanism when you have the intermittency from, you know, renewable energy sources that will also provide us 
in the interim a solution to the environmental issue that we have here as it relates to and hydro, you know, more sustainable and reliable to the energy grids. I would tell anybody, you know, from a legislative perspective that there is a relationship there and there's a other perspective there that they need to take into account if they're seriously concerned with what's in the best interest of the environment. So we did a huge paper at CCI, you know, researching this and, and looking at the environmental implications and what models there might be where whereby policy could incentivize mining operations or these, you know, big data centers, which is basically what they are. Uh, to actually be useful, right, in terms of the the transition to renewables that I personally think is is way overdue and quite warranted. Now, uh, so I think some of that is pretty is fairly well documented, and the debate rages. But I, I want to get back to this economic development and jobs piece, and and I recognize how you know fueling the the transition to renewables is in and of itself, to your point, uh, a job creating mechanism, or it certainly can be, and that is a very site specific. Uh, job creation mechanism, right? Like if you're going to actually build a hydro plant that has to be done on site. And I think one of the criticisms of the crypto industry when claims are, you know, I think, I think to be fair, is occasionally quite grandiose claims about the, you know, the, the jobs that are going to be created by this industry are made is that a lot of those jobs are actually uh, capable of being done remotely, right? So if you're a developer, you can code from anywhere, even if you're running marketing or whatever it is, even business, you can operation. A lot of these things can be done remotely. And so there isn't necessarily an argument that better regulation in any jurisdiction is going to necessarily improve you know, the, the job prospects or workforce development. But what you're talking about, I think, is a very different thing. And so connecting the uh, movement toward more renewables, and we'll leave the environmental piece, I think, aside, but that movement, right, uh, and assuming that we, we take that as, as true, uh, and then also this idea that the operations themselves require on-site expertise. I think that is really interesting. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of in Rochester specifically, which sounds like the site that you can, the first locus of, of this for Foundry, what are we talking about? What numbers are we talking here, right? It sounds like you've done this transition, you've created these models of growth. And I'm just curious, you know, what are we talking in the tens, the hundreds that potentially, you know, how, how are you thinking about this scale? So right now, as we're building out our network of clients and customers that we service across the Bitcoin network, we're in the tens, but also we're building pipelines. So in my economic and community development role, self, and I want to shout another colleague of mine, um, Josh Bayoun, who we co-created a curriculum called Blockchain Fundamentals uh, 001. And we said 001 because I don't know if you ever sat through a Blockchain Fundamentals 101, but for a lot of people, it's still over their heads. And so we're going to roll it out. We're going to phase it in over the next two years where this year we're going to phase it in with courses that are already relevant to some of the sections of the course. And then next year it'll roll out in high schools for its own course. But this is to get high school youth already thinking about our industry as a, you know, post-secondary option before, you know, colleges and military and other entrepreneurship and employment opportunities come, right? That they see us as a meaningful job opportunity and that we've equipped them through this blockchain fundamentals to be successful, right? To walk in already with some capability of functioning in his, in his roles and in his space. But then we're going way back on the pipeline at the middle school level and the elementary school level, where we rolled out a program called DeFi, DeFi with a Y, not an I, and it stands for Decentralizing Education for Youth. And we know that the, the foundation of a strong STEM education moving forward is going to be mathematics. And so we have fourth graders and eighth graders already undergoing math enrichment so that by the time they get to the high school level, they have that solid foundation we can build on 
and they can take advantage of these kinds of jobs that we're projecting and building out. Mind you, I just came onto the Foundry team in December of 2021. And so Deploy, I think, literally just hit its one-year anniversary. But we're going to be transitioning our name change to uh, minor maintenance services here pretty soon. So there is a, I can speak to one name change. One name change. Yeah, one name change at least. (laughs) Here we go. But if you talk to me in about a year, right, we could be talking about high tens to now breaking into the hundreds because there's enough of clientele base where we have a team that's servicing mass sections of the mining fleet because we've un- helped miners understand that this work goes far beyond temp labor. I know in the short term, you think it's cost effective, but I can tell you as somebody who's out there on the front lines of keeping our decentralized infrastructure up and hashing, in the long run, it, it just, it doesn't pay off. I'm hoping you're right, because I think this is one of the challenges that the industry faces. If there is a true alignment, and whatever it is, whether it is in environmental issues, you know, renewable energy, or in job creation, all of that is so much an easier story to tell in these rather difficult conversations that happen with these communities. I just sometimes find like there's a real risk that we oversell on some things. Let's be clear, too. Uh, as of right now, there is no state or locality that I know of that is giving the types of tax breaks and tax credits to mining operations that other traditional businesses get to benefit from. And this is just me speaking yeah. from my chamber. It's a really good point, right? Like it's, You're up against this entrenched subsidy industrial complex that's already fossil fuel supportive, right? And I can speak in depth about the fact that when you look at the public investments that go to let, I don't know, let's say a car manufacturer, when you look at the mm. wages as a result of those multi-million, maybe even billion dollar investments on capital projects and infrastructure and whatnot, when you look at the wages that these workers are making, the taxes that they pay back, the taxes that the businesses don't have to pay, the public never gets the yield on that investment, you know? And this is just coming from me and my other role as a chamber of commerce executive who, you know, as, as, you know, as it relates to trying to really achieve social equity, we have to look at and invest in the industries in the future the same way we do in traditional businesses and industries. And we, we're talking about global competition here. We have to place those bets in a meaningful way. And right now, I just don't think it's, it's not apples to apples. I, I can guarantee you it's not apples to apples. Like there are so many benefits that legacy employers get from their local municipalities, from the state and from the federal government that mining operations are not getting that allow them to scale, that allow them to see record profits. And if we're serious about, let's go beyond just Bitcoin mining, let's just say blockchain technology in general. If you create a system where people involved in that system understand that there is a benefit and a profit to productive, positive behavior, will it encourage and foster more positive, productive behaviors in place of criminal activity and then start to deal with community improvement from that perspective as well? You're more likely to want to engage in those kind of positive and productive activities versus adverse and shadow activity because there's a financial benefit to you, right? And and it's us now trying to apply this technology to address real socioeconomic civic disorders 
And what will the jobs be from there, right? Like we're working with some folks from our tech community in Rochester to try to build this thing out. It's a passion project now under our nonprofit, Rock the Block. But this is the way that we are trying to advance our mission at Foundry, which is to enable decentralized, empower decentralized infrastructure. This is the thinking that we're bringing. And these are the kinds of, right? It's not like we're getting an investment from the city of Rochester or New York State or Monroe County or the federal government, right? Like these are all initiatives we have to burden and shoulder on our own until our industry becomes more prominent. And then we qualify for these same economic development benefits that legacy employers receive. So I think there's huge possibility, right? I'm just giving you one example, but there's huge possibilities of applying the, the fundamental foundation of what we're talking about here, which is blockchain technology in a number of different ways that will cause multiple jobs and require vast restructuring of our public education system, which we're trying to do in Rochester, do some of the programs that I talked about, right? That's a direct employer to public educational partnership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a number of different, you know, jobs on the horizon. So it's not that we are over-promising, under-delivering, it's just we have to understand that we do not receive the same level of benefit or investment of public yeah. dollars that, it, that they do. And they're able to scale and innovate these ideas and hire 100 people. And we have to move at the pace of success. Yeah. And I think, Adrian, you know, what you're really getting at is, is these are systemic questions. That's right. Economic development is a, it's a systems problem. And yeah. what you're highlighting today is that you know, who gets to be part of those systems is often the key, a key determinant of, of success as well. Uh, and and my view on this you know, remains consistent over many decades, which is that you know we really need to be thinking far more holistically about being open to industry segments, and that is not a crypto uh, you know uh, point of view. It's a general point of view because we're in a world where, particularly with automation, with the number of jobs that are going to be removed because of AI, with changing demographics around the world, uh, I think that we do need to be quite open to places where we are seeing. Uh, a, a manifest or multifold opportunity for for job creation um, root cause, right? Particularly if it's job creation that is is resulting in uh, sustainable uh, lifestyle. Gainful, right? yeah, gainful is, employment, is, right? Gainful employment, gainful employment is, and to be frank, that is, it's that potential that I think makes our industry much more exciting and lucrative to folks than just traditional systems where we're talking, you know, within dollars of minimum wage. And then obviously with inflation going, And I feel this more as somebody who's from a community that has high levels of poverty. Nothing does more to hurt the poor than inflation. Does it matter that you make $15, $16 an hour in New York State if your purchasing power is still at $7, $8, you know, effectively? Like it, It doesn't really matter. And so whether it's our actual Bitcoin and these currencies that are alternatives to, you know, legacy financial system or even the jobs piece. It's about how do you gainfully employ people and economically empower them? Well, we're, we're going to have to wrap, but I certainly hope our listeners take away that there are opportunities of a variety of different jobs or economic development to be a priority at various mm-hmm. places in the industry and more generally. And I think when tech started, people didn't foresee that some of the biggest employers in tech, and as much as Michael and I have expressed, you know, our view is repeatedly on the show about the challenges of Web2. There's no question they are massive employers across a wide variety of skill sets, geographies, uh, and, and globally. And the same thing is true of entertainment industry. We're seeing a strike that's happening right now and the effects on workers 
that um, engage have nothing to do with content creation or writing or production or anything like that, but are, are security, right? Are the people who are providing um, food services, like things like this. There are huge knock-on effects uh, across a, a gigantic swath of, of the community. And those who are hurt the most are often those, to your point, Adrian, that are the least able to create fungibility of their skill sets and are not even the ones that are necessarily in the middle of a fight at any given moment. So with that, we do have to wrap, but thank you so much, Adrian Hill from Founder Digital for joining so us today for a provocative conversation. As always, my co-host, Michael Casey, and to all of you, our listeners, come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.